Welcome to The Practice Podcast, a show created by lawyers to help lawyers in life and business without all the complicated lawyer language. Let's welcome Bast Amron founders and your hosts, Jeff Bast and Brett Amron. Happy Friday. Hi, Brett. (laughs) (laughs) Hi, Jeff. How you doing, man? Good. We're recording on a Friday. I love recording I, I, on Fridays. I'm not sure how the listener would guess that. I've, <laughs> well, maybe they started at this point. You know, I always fast forward to the intro. Ah, yes. So, Brett, what's what's a common misconception that people have about you? Oh, no. <laughs> no, I, I'm not going to answer gonna that. I'm not going to answer that. Yeah. Mm-mm. I would say for you that it's people think you're just super serious all the time and mean and scary, but you're actually just a great guy <laughs> and warm and fuzzy. Just not all the time. And cut, and cut I'm mean and scary and, you know, just not all the time. Sometimes. Um, when you need to be, you can turn it on and off. Yeah. I try outside of the office, you know, not to be too serious because what we do is fairly serious. serious. And I've grown over the years to try not to be too serious all the time in the office too. But um, yeah. Tends to, I guess, come across that way sometimes. So, but maybe people take that approach. But thank right. you for that. What, what do you think is the most common misconception about you? It's the same thing. I would say that because people think I'm super serious, but and I hear that all the time. And they think you mean. Actually, I've been told that. I've been told by new hires that I was very mean during the interview. And I don't think I'm being mean. I'm just asking questions. So I subscribe to the when working work and when playing play and try not to mix them too much. But that doesn't mean I don't want to have fun when working. But what do you mean? We, you and I, we have fun every day. There you go. Well, we have this podcast and we have a guest sitting here. We so do. Maybe we and should talk to look, him. Look, look. He's, He's sitting right there. He's like, waiting so patiently. I agreed to come on this thing and listen to these two guys. Our guest today is Matthew Creighton. Matthew is the visionary behind Publitics, a public affairs, political PR, and strategy consultancy with extensive experience advising campaigns, candidates, executives, and brands. Matt possesses a unique perspective that blends politics with emerging technology. And most recently, he worked with Biden for president on special projects, including the creation of the viral We Just Did hat and collateral for endorsements, including NBA star Ben Simmons. His work on the campaign was recognized with a Campaigns and Elections Magazine Stanley F. Reed Award. And prior to founding Publitics, Matt worked at Farley Dickinson University's Public Mind Poll and later served as an adjunct instructor there. And he's currently an adjunct professor in Centenary University's business department, teaching in their first of its kind social media program. We're going to dig into that one for sure. Welcome, Matthew. Welcome, Matthew. Do you prefer Matthew or Matt? Matt's good, and thanks for having me. So can I just jump in for a second? It's Fairly Dickinson. Oh, so Jeff, Jeff Brett loves to, okay. you know, you could do the intros if you no, want. No, no, you no, no, no. Make- <laughs> and how do you pronounce, is it Publitics? How do you pronounce that? I think I had that one. That's fine. Yeah, no, you, you pretty much nailed it. So that's, uh, there that's you go. It. See, but, uh, I'm giving you a couple of pronunciations that float around. Thank you. Yeah. I think that's, see, you, okay, you jumped all job, over man. me. You are me. I think the misconception is not a misconception. Matthew, how are you? All right, so how did you come to form Publitics and tell us your background? That's actually kind of an interesting story. So, or maybe not interesting, but well, it's sort of we'll a very know. classic millennial kind of thing, right? So I graduated college in 
2010 with my bachelor's, 2011 with my master's. The plan the whole time was to go into teaching. So I was destined to be a secondary school teacher doing history, political science. So I did my undergrad history, political science, and then a master's degree in education. But I don't know, you know, everyone remembers 2008, uh, a little bit of a financial snafu there, right? Uh, the economy kind of melted down. So there weren't very many jobs when I got out. So I was sort of thinking, oh my God, what am I going to do? Like a lot of people in my cohort. So, you know, I started, uh, I took a couple of different jobs, uh, one at Fairleigh Dickinson University doing, of all things, fundraising specifically geared at young alumni. And as you can imagine, that was that was a bit tough. Yeah. In the aftermath of a financial crisis, student loans, you know, so I, I would have to endure actually valuable life experience having to hear no, but not just hear no, but you can hear it in a multitude of different and very colorful ways. So, Hell no. um, you know, yeah, <laughs> as you can imagine, you know, I was told to do all sorts of things that, uh, that weren't uh, especially polite. So it was in, in that mix that I decided I didn't really like doing that very much and thought, you know what, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to go ahead and try to start my own business. So I, uh, I was like, well, I've always liked politics, so I'll just be a political consultant. Sounds okay. nuts that I yeah. said now that I'm, you know, recounting this story, but I was like, all right, well, let's give it a shot. So I ended up getting laid off actually from that first job I had formed a company and fortunately was able to pick up two clients. And really what I did was, you know, I asked myself, well, what would a campaign trust someone of my age to do? And I was like, oh, digital media, social media, right? Like I know social media, so they'll hire me to do that, right? So luckily I found two campaigns that were willing to do that and ended up actually winning a local race, which kind of opened up some doors and have been rolling along ever since. So moving up the ladder. So it was uh, kind of a, again, a classic sort of millennial story, but that's how I got my start. And what happened to teaching? Just abandoned. Yeah, totally went by the wayside. So in fairness, right? So I did the whole student teaching thing and realized that I enjoyed the act of teaching, really didn't like the paperwork. So there was quite a bit of paperwork, standards, all of that stuff, standardized testing, really didn't enjoy that part. And that was increasingly, seemingly uh, increasingly making up a larger proportion of the job than I was interested in. Plus, again, it's sort of also combined with the fact that there really weren't that many jobs out there. So you would apply for a, a teaching job and there would be 200 other applicants who had five to 10 years experience already. So you're like up against the sort of best, uh, best in the business. You're just out of college. So, but I was thankfully able to scratch the itch a little bit further down the road, doing some work at FDU, adjuncting there, and then finally at uh, Centenary University. Excellent. And what is just at FDU public mind poll? What, what's a public mind poll? Yes. So the public mind poll is a uh, public polling institute. So very similar to like Quinnipiac or uh, Mammoth polls that, that we're going to see a, a whole lot of over the next two years. You know, everyone's going to be checking the, the uh, RCP averages and the uh, sort of Nate Silver's. I don't know if he's actually aggregating polls anymore, but <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's very similar to that where you had a couple folks at the university testing public opinion on a variety of issues, both nationally and in New Jersey. So I was very fortunate during grad school to be able to work there, which also actually helped provide a very valuable building block for my career ultimately. And I was able to get some experience in the world of public opinion research, figure out how it worked, what kind of questions to ask, what sort of pitfalls to avoid. So that was a really interesting experience as well. Does it work? That's the question. <laughs> Doesn't. So you went to school. Well, I'll go ahead and answer that and then I'll 
I was going to say we could have a whole episode <laughs> right. on, on does uh, yeah. does polling work and and why that may be the case that it that it either does or doesn't. So, yeah. uh, so I won't, agreed. I won't even uh, try to touch that right now. We'll but. we'll table that one. Come back to it. So you go to school. You come out thinking you know you want to be in this sort of consulting world, right? And shift gears to becoming an entrepreneur, even though it's the same space. But now you shift gears to become an entrepreneur. Did you ever have thoughts of that of starting your own business before that? And if not, sort of give us a little bit of insight into that shift and then that sort of journey in starting your own business and becoming an entrepreneur. If I'm being honest, the answer is no. I never <laughs> had that thought that I was going to start my own business, right? That always seemed like something that someone else might do, but not me necessarily. I mean, when you kind of plan your whole life around getting into the classroom, there really aren't too many variables. Like once you get that job, you, you know, you show up at the same time every day, you do the same number of classes, you teach the same stuff, and then you go home and you repeat and do that over again. So, and it's hard work, but there is some predictability to it. So I did not imagine getting into sort of an entrepreneurial space when I was younger. But the one thing I think that was formative for me in that area was getting laid off from my first job ever and 10 months, ultimately 10 months after I got the job, right? So it was just like, everything was a mess. Seeing, again, the broader economy kind of being in a little bit of a rough shape. To me, I was like, well, at this point in my life, I can give it a shot, right? And see what happens. And having no idea what any of that entailed. I mean, in fairness, I had no idea. It's not like I even read the how to run a business for dummies manual. I did not do that. So it was a little bit of luck, a little bit of good timing, some networking there. But ultimately, um, that was a very formative experience. And, and having that feeling of, well, I, do I really want to leave my future, my career in someone else's hands, ultimately? And at that time, again, whether foolishly or not, my answer was no, I really don't want to leave my career in someone else's hands. I want to try to at least have as much control over what happens to me in the future in my professional life as possible. So that's sort of the start. And then uh, again, a uh, little bit of luck and many, many hard lessons later. Here we are. It's actually not an uncommon story for entrepreneurs. You know, we talked to a lot of entrepreneurs and many of them have said, I was an idiot. I was foolish. I had no idea what I was doing. And that, I don't know if that's just their reflection, you know, after the fact or what, but a lot of successful entrepreneurs are born out of risk-taking that maybe is not the most carefully calculated risk, and they succeed. So, well, I mean, I think when you look back, right, I mean, you would say, yeah, I didn't know what I was doing. And that's fair because you've never done it, right? And so you're learning, right. you're learning as you go to run this, start a business, run a business, learn how to go out and get business, right? I mean, You'd never done it before, and neither one of us had ever done it before when we started our own business. So hindsight, obviously, you know, you look at it and say, yeah, I didn't know what I was doing, but that's fair. And I don't think that's harsh criticism. I think that's no. fair. But I think that, you know, to me, it's, all right, what are the lessons that were learned along the way? And I think you, Matt, have a little bit different than Jeff and I in that we became entrepreneurs further along in our career. Right, yeah. Like, I had practiced law for 10 years. So I had comfort in my ability as a lawyer at that stage and obviously not having run my own business. That was new. You know, I had sort of that confidence and that ability and I, and Jeff the same a little bit longer in terms of the practice when he left and started his own firm. So you were both learning to run a business and starting your career. There had to have been days when you were sitting back thinking, 
did I do the, like, is this right? Imposter syndrome. <laughs> like, well, right. imposter syndrome, like what, you know, what should I be doing? Should I be doing something else? Can I, should I do that? You know, there had to have been, because I know there were for me, definitely. Big time, big time. <laughs> and I think anyone that tells you that they didn't feel that and that they were 100% confident every yeah. single day that they knew exactly what they were doing in every situation scenario, they would be lying to you. Yeah. And I'll tell you, it persisted for a while. I mean, it still does, right? It still yeah. crops. I'm sure you, you guys end up having those feelings every now and then. Like, am I doing the right thing? Is there some secret sauce right. that I'm, I'm missing? You know, you kind of get into a little bit of a doom loop in your head, but you're 100% right. Yeah. So at the beginning, definitely a lot of imposter syndrome, especially since there were a lot of things that I was learning along the way, both on the business end, right? How to run a business and then also how to service clients. So, but at the end of the day, I think one of the biggest lessons learned is that you have to be willing to learn. And that's not something, and the further I get into my career, that's something that I see quite a bit of actually is people who haven't quite gotten to where they want to be in their careers or keep hitting a wall and they can't quite figure it out. It's Oftentimes, this inability to recognize that there's always something you can learn from every situation. Like that nobody's infallible, and deluding yourself into thinking that you're infallible actually leads you to much worse outcomes. Both again on the business end, client services end. Because yeah. if we're not willing to learn, then you know we're just kind of shooting in the dark. So I mean, there, there's quite a bit of that right in our industry and in every industry where it's like you know we have this one thing that we did one time and it worked really well, but then from that moment forward, we never learned a damn thing beyond that. I mean, that's extremely problematic. So, right. so I would say, yeah, definitely felt that. Yeah. And, you know, I think a lot of entrepreneurs and business owners still late into their career will feel like, oh, well, did I do the right thing? Or someone must know better than I do about right. this or that. But yeah, you, know, you kind of have to ground yourself in those lessons learned, I think. I like that. I mean, I don't think I was exuding, it wasn't total confidence, but I never really considered the risk of failure. It just wasn't even, it's not that I was certain I was going to succeed. I just, failure just wasn't even on the, you know, it wasn't in my analysis. And maybe that was a, you know, a blind spot for me. But when I started out, anyway, I love the idea, the lesson you, this idea of, of willingness to learn. And I think it's actually, not only do you need to be willing to learn, but you got to be open to learning. You have to actually want to learn. It's not even just that you're accepting it. You're actually seeking it, you know, learning, knowledge, growth, especially in a new business, in a new field, for sure. So tell us about, we just did hat for those, you know, anyone who maybe they're not on social media or maybe they weren't around during sure. that time period. I don't know where they were, but sleeping. tell us about the we just did hat. That was kind of a funny experience. So this is, I think, only the second time that anyone's really talked about this out loud. <laughs> uh, yeah, so it's been sort of out there. And uh, when it was happening, there there was a ton of interest in like, you know, who did this and, and what does it all mean? But I'll kind of go through. We were sitting around like, I think the rest of, or at least, you know, some chunk of America, at least waiting nervously <laughs> for election results, right? So at this point, it was right before they called Pennsylvania and all indications were that the votes were still out and to be counted in all the places that would more than enough put Joe Biden over top. So, but again, in this industry, a lot of people are very superstitious. So <laughs> I'm, sitting, 
like election night, like if you ask Eddie, well, I mean, most political consultants or people who work in politics, they hate election day, you know, well, especially in the communications field, right? There's nothing to do on election day. You're just waiting. Right? Um, you're just waiting. You're just waiting around. The field teams are out knocking doors, making phone calls, doing their thing. But like you are just sitting around and then, you know, you start getting the, oh, what does turnout look like here? And it, nothing, none of those numbers are really mean anything at any point. And I think there's this feeling of like, until the numbers are official and they actually make that call, I don't want to say anything, Put anything into the universe that might jinx the outcome of this. I know it's, it sounds nuts, but it's there's a little bit of superstition. So we're, we're all sitting around on pins and needles. But at that point, um, everything looked really good. Uh, and then some calls started circulating around some folks that were in and around the campaign. And we started talking about, like, wouldn't it be funny? And I can't take full credit for this. We really just helped uh, put the whole thing together. But someone had the idea, well, what if we just create a hat as an answer to, like, you know, the MAGA hats that have been floating around for a few years? And it's really, okay, yeah, that's fine. And, like, we'll do it in a way that's that's super subtle, right? Like, we just did put a 46 on it and then hand them out to some close close friends and, you know, obviously family and folks close to the president. Anyway, so what ended up happening was there was this Instagram photo of the first lady and the president and he had the hat on and they were holding this sign that at one point it's like, I think it was like the vice president lives here. They crossed it out and said the president lives here. And like, it was sort of just a celebratory photo, but he was wearing this hat and you really couldn't see it unless you zoomed in. And what ended up happening was someone on TikTok, and I guess this is how a lot of viral stuff starts now, right? Like someone on TikTok picked it up and got the joke and it just went viral from there. And I think the the most viral part about all of it was the fact that nobody wanted to talk about it. So we, we didn't say anything, right? It wasn't like, oh yeah, actually you, you nailed it. Everyone stayed completely silent about it. And it kind of started making the rounds and... Uh, and like within a day, like if you Googled the hat, there were like all sorts of knockoffs and stuff that you could buy from like Amazon or like whatever other like marketplaces that were out there. Like people were like making this hat. I think it ended up on uh, like a Conan O'Brien segment, GQ. So like everyone's like, oh, what does the hat mean? What does it mean? <laughs> so it was really, the subtlety was part of the joke. But like, I think if it weren't for that one initial TikTok user, I don't think it would have made much of an impact, but it was blown off steam really is what it was. And it was a lot of fun. Well, sometimes those, I mean, those ideas are some of the best ideas, right? And you never know what's going to, especially on social media today and TikTok. I mean, just, I guess you never know in your field, right? What necessarily is going to hit and what may not. I mean, you, you have experience, you're going to work through it. And, and there's some things that you can bring to it and say, well, we think this will work, but like you were completely surprised by, you know, how viral the hat went. And so I'm sure there's, there's got to be other examples of that. In political consultancy, politics is a very difficult field, right? I mean, I would imagine, like the practice of law, there are thousands upon thousands of consultants and other people that you're working with or working against or competing with. And so from our perspective, sitting on the outside, we're not on the inside like you are. Politics right now looks, you know, it just looks ugly and it's just sometimes you just want to turn it off. Do you guys see that or do you see it from a different perspective because it's work and, you know, you really enjoy it and love it? And, you know, I'm just curious, we're on the outside and you're on the inside. Is there any sort of different view? The timing of your question is really, really good. Yes. Yeah, so I was having this conversation with someone a few days ago. I mean, we're obviously staring down the barrel of the 2024 presidential cycle, you know, and then that's something that none of us are really going to be to be able to escape unless we cut all the cable going into our houses and throw our phones out the windows and uh, maybe yet move to a remote you know, desert somewhere. I don't know. But I think personally, like, so from the perspective of someone who works in the industry, you still find a lot of meaning in feeling like you're doing the right thing in fighting for stuff that you 
generally believe in and that you think is good generally for the country or city or state or wherever you're working. What I will say is there used to be, campaigns are still fun, but they used to be a little more fun. The stakes are just very high right now. I mean, from our perspective, right? So obviously we, in the political consulting industry, we have a whole bunch of corporate clients and corporate work that's very apolitical and I mean, well, almost everything is politics adjacent at this point, but for the most part, apolitical from that perspective. But the political stuff generally pick a side. And obviously, like we're, you know, we work on the Democratic side. So my perspective, the stakes are extraordinarily high in a way that hasn't been in a very long time in this country. So, I mean, if you look at past election cycles, like, you know, you had a choice between two people and maybe they disagreed on fundamentally on big issues and ultimately the direction of the country. But I think there is broad agreement that elections matter, that democracy matters, that our institutions, albeit imperfect, are important to preserve. And now I think we have moved away from that to a place where the stakes are, you have one side that believes in those things. Uh, You may not agree on all the policy stuff, but generally believes in all of those things. On the other side, depending upon who ends up becoming the nominee, but I think it's quite likely, you know, going to be the the same guy that was there before, right? That the stakes are pretty high there, generally, not just from a policy perspective, but just from the general agreement about the American experiment, right? Like the agreement that democracy is is a thing that we should we should preserve and foster in this country. So it's become more of a very, it's always been a serious enterprise, but I think there's a sort of heaviness that has fallen over the industry a little bit and people who work in politics. So, I mean, that's sort of unfortunate, but true, but there's still bright spots. I mean, you can still have fun in these campaigns. I mean, you have to, right? You have to be able to laugh a little bit and, and you know, try to have a sense of humor. Otherwise, you'll drive yourself nuts. So yeah, uh, there's a little bit of that. Yeah, I think that's, the case in anything serious, but what you're doing has uh, serious implications for a lot of people. And so if we shift away from the political sphere, you said you do a lot of corporate sure. related work. And so how to well, tell us about what you might do for corporate clients and how do they find you and how do they know they need you? Sure. Well, <laughs> how do they know? So unfortunately, a lot of times we're getting a call when there's already trouble. So we do a lot of crisis communication crisis. work. We also do a lot of uh, proactive positioning and, and branding and message development and executive positioning and and those sorts of things. You know, communication around hot button issues, which I would put potentially in the crisis communications bucket. So, so really, where we got started, in the the pitch I think that resonates with with a lot of our corporate clients is the fact that campaigns essentially are startups, and every day is something new. There's always some new challenge, some new crisis, and you do learn a lot of things on the campaign trail that you can apply to the boardroom. So you can take lessons learned in the war room bring it to the boardroom and again, effectively help position organizations, brands, executives, public figures relative to the marketplace overall, right? So I think we're able to take that sort of campaign mentality and say like, look, this is what we learned. And you often learn those lessons the hard way. You learn them on a compressed timeline. Good news for you in the corporate space is, you know, we have a little bit more breathing room. You're going to be here until you're not, but there is no hard, you know, election day for you, at least at this point. So, you know, we have some time to get this right and apply some of those lessons learned. So that's really how it started. And ultimately, a lot of the, again, the work that we started to do with corporate clients revolved around what I would call like political adjacent issues. So whether it was like a land use thing, right? Like there are political elements to land use policy or uh, even tech, right? You look at tech and there are all sorts of like public 
policy landmines that people are, are trying to navigate there or position against in, in the marketplace. So that's really the big pitch is, is, you know, we're taking those tools that we've honed in campaigns. And the, and the cool thing about campaigns is you can do a ton of them, right? And you can do it over and over and over again and test and iterate and really sharpen up your, your toolkit to the point where, you know, when you're bringing it to a corporate client, you have something that, that has been battle tested uh, repeatedly. Cool. And so um, I get some companies dealing with a crisis. I get the need for PR and strategy. But how does when someone's not dealing with a crisis, how does you know a small business, a law firm? We deal with a lot of lawyers and law firms. Mm-hmm. Why does a law firm need your service, or why should they use your service? Is it is it all messaging? Any communications, external communications, social media that you help? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's a, it's a little bit of everything. So where we typically start is on the strategy side. And I think that this is an underappreciated part of the puzzle. So you can walk into a client or even, you know, if you at any given law firm, you know, they have a marketing committee sometimes, you know, at, at some of the larger firms, maybe even an in-house marketing person. Um, and this is actually some, these are things that we've dealt with. And you know, you can walk into the room and pitch like, oh, well, we just need to do more Instagram or we need to do more LinkedIn or more thought leadership. or And those are all tactics. That's all great. But the question is, why are we doing those things? Who are we trying to reach? What sort of message do you have? What makes you better? And this is where the campaign mindset comes in, is what differentiates you from the next firm over, right? Because there are a ton, I mean, it's a crowded space. The legal profession is an extraordinarily competitive space to be in, as, you know, to use that as an example. So, so really what we like to do is start with the message and the strategy and try to figure out what the overall brand and positioning in the marketplace is. And then you start to plug in the tactics along the way. So, that may very well be, well, we have to do more LinkedIn content marketing. Uh, you know, we have to do, maybe we start a, a podcast, right? That's the way to reach the people that we want to reach. Or, you know, we try to do more earned media. But across all of those things, here are the main points that we're going to keep pushing right. on, right? The main points, the positioning, the way that you differentiate yourself from the marketplace. So that's really where we like to start is what is your roadmap? And then you can try to figure out how to get there afterwards. Yeah. I think you're right that a lot of law firms are, not not just law firms, businesses are out there on LinkedIn, on social media posting, but they're not really, if you ask them why or what goal they're trying to accomplish, I think a lot of them really don't know. And so utilizing an expert like you to formulate a strategy before you embark on a project like that, you know, is probably useful. So if you're out there and you're listening and you don't have a PR and strategy consultant like Matthew Creighton, you or you're running for office. Or if you're running, especially if you're running for office, right? <laughs> are you looking, are you taking clients right now or is it, are you booked? Yeah, yeah. We're always taking clients. We're very lucky in that we can be very selective about who we work with at this point. So transitioning from, again, sort of a startup business, you're taking every piece of business sure. that comes your way to, to now. We're lucky in that we have a really good team. So we have offices in uh, New Jersey, Washington, D.C., Philadelphia, and we are smaller by design so that we can be agile. And then we can also say no to stuff that we don't want to do. So I do actually say plenty of no at this point. But if the right stuff comes along, we, we definitely are. We're always taking clients and evaluating the relationship. And at the end of the day, too, as advice for folks who are looking for this type of help, it, it is good to try to feel out whether or not it is it is a good fit, right? Because like sometimes like we may not be a good fit for certain firms and, and they'll find a better 
they'll have a better fit with someone else. So I think that's a huge thing too, is like you want to really try to figure out if you see eye to eye and, you know, set expectations in a way that makes makes sense. But yeah, that's a long way of saying it. We, you know, we're always looking at new clients, new business. Well, that is not different or that different than the legal field, honestly. You know, clients have to feel comfortable with their lawyers because right. no matter what they're hiring their lawyer for, they have to feel comfortable, not just obviously comfortable in their abilities, but comfortable with them and having the same sort of views and vision and things like that is, is, is important to try to achieve the best result possible, which is sounds very similar, right, in your field too. So, Yeah. So if you're uh, running a business or running for office, Brett Amron for president, I'm, you, you heard says, it first here. Says nobody. <laughs> Reach out to Matthew Creighton. Matthew, it was really great to have you on today. It was really a lot of fun, very interesting. I love learning new stuff. I am willing to learn. If you enjoyed the show as much as I did, I doubt you did, but if you did, leave us a five-star review, follow the show, share the episode with your friends and family, and we will see you next time. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Thanks for having me. Brett, thank you. Nelson, no. thank you as well. Thanks, Nelson. Bye, Jeff. For more information on this show and other resources, visit FastAmron.com and connect with us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram at FastAmron.com.